This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome along to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with new episodes every Thursday. Today we're returning to a subject that we covered in the very first episode of this podcast, Osborne, which is Queen Victoria's home on the Isle of Wight. With its sandy beach and beautiful gardens, it's often been depicted as something of a holiday home for Victoria and her family. But as we'll discover, this impressive island retreat was also a real political powerhouse. And that's an aspect that both of our guests are familiar with. Joining me for this episode are Dr Lee Butcher, who has been exploring Osborne's place as a global diplomatic hub as part of his PhD. Hello, great to be here. And Dr Andrew Han, the team leader for Properties Historians at English Heritage, who co-supervised Lee in his thesis. Hello there. So let's look at the traditional view of Osborne then. Uh, We'll start off with you, Andrew. Has English Heritage traditionally presented Osborne to its visitors in a certain way? We have indeed, really. It's really sort of linked in with the general public perception of Osborne. I mean, for those members of the public who know anything about Osborne, they think of it as being... Queen Victoria's seaside family home and that's the way that we've always presented it to visitors. We focus very much on the happy family life of the royals there and they're bringing up their children, playing on the beach, doing cooking in the in the Swiss cottage and playing in the Swiss cottage gardens and doing you know all the sort of like family activities that we associate with the young royal family in the early years of Victoria's reign. What are the key features of the property and grounds that visitors have a sense that this was indeed a family home, first and foremost? Well, I think there's all sorts of different aspects. I mean, if you look at the main house itself, the pavilion is a very sort of modest size of residence. You know, the the rooms are, are fairly human in scale. You have the dining room, the drawing room. Queen Victoria's bedroom and and dressing room, whatever. They're not large rooms. And so you get the idea of it being a family home, so to speak. And then if you get out into the gardens, as I mentioned before, we have the Swiss cottage with its miniature kitchen and dining room and little museum where the children, we have our display talking about how the children used to sort of learn how to be ordinary, ordinary middle class family down there and, you know, sort of cooking, preparing meals for their parents and also collecting things in the museum. And then we also, when we did our interpretation down at the beach, we talked about how they went down to the beach with their governess and playing on the beach, collecting shells, learning to swim and all those sort of things. So you really get a sense of Osborne as a place, a happy place for Queen Victoria and Prince Albert and a place where they could enjoy themselves. And even more recently in 2019, when we talked about Queen Victoria and Prince Albert's birthdays, they often spent their birthdays, pretty much all of Queen Victoria's birthdays were spent at Osborne. And a lot of the presents that they gave to each other are on display in the house in terms of some of the collection there. So you do get this idea of it being a, a family home and a place where Queen Victoria and Prince Albert really cherished and, and was a really important place for them and their family. And the way that Queen Victoria and Prince Albert lived there finds its way into photographs as well. And I suppose that presents a certain way that we would interpret how they wanted to present the house, if you get what I mean. So were they presenting a particular perception to the public? They were indeed. I mean, I, I think it's become quite clear that Queen Victoria and Prince Albert almost used Osborne as a means of curating their own identities. They wanted to present this image of a, a happy, sort of almost middle-class family life. 
really to sort of contrast themselves with the Georgians who'd been quite dissolute in character. A lot of them had had mistresses and they hadn't had a, any le- legitimate children, many of them, which is why the dynasty had passed to Victoria. And Victoria and Albert particularly wanted to present a very different view of the monarchy, to sort of rehabilitate the monarchy as more of a sort of moral family-oriented monarchy. And they saw Osborne as a really good way of doing this because the public perception of Osborne as this seaside family home And so by placing photographs of happy family groups in the gardens at Osborne, allowing journalists to write about what the family were doing at Osborne by reporting it in the court circular, and by generally sort of allowing artists to paint pictures of, say, the Swiss cottage and the Swiss cottage gardens, and those paintings were then exhibited at the Royal Academy. So the public is gaining this idea about what Osborne is like. It's not something that is just happening by chance. It's something that Victoria and Albert are deliberately trying to project this image of a happy family home, because then by reflection, that will present them as being a happy uh, moral family. So it's all part of rehabilitating the monarchy after a, a little sticky patch towards the end of the Georgian era. But as we'll discover, there's obviously more than meets the eye. So was it always known that Osborne had this bigger story to tell, something that was actually a bit more serious to do with politics, empire, diplomacy... Yeah, I I think we have. We've always known that there was a bigger story to tell. In a sense, Victoria and Albert, when they first saw Osborne in 1844 and decided that they wanted to buy it, they even themselves had a bit of a a rose-tinted view of what Osborne could be. They thought it could be this seaside retreat. It was only a relatively small, modest Georgian house. And they thought, oh, we could move in here. We'll have everything we need. Victoria actually said, it's impossible to imagine a prettier spot. We have a charming beach quite to ourselves, we can walk anywhere without being followed or mobbed. You know, they had this idea that they could be sort of secreted away in this sort of seaside hideaway where they could arrive at the beach unobserved from the royal yacht and spend time with their family away from public gaze. But they soon realised that actually the Queen is the monarch and she can't ever leave her royal duties behind. And so she needs to have a large retinue of retainers, all the royal court and and so forth, have to come to Osborne as well when she's there. And you can't make do with just a small Georgian house. So that's why the house was rebuilt. And they included these large extensions, the main wing and household wing, which were really to accommodate all these other functions, the royal court, the royal household, spaces for putting up guests, and for all the large numbers of servants that they would need to maintain them. And so there's always this idea that there's this wider function for Osborne, but it's something that we haven't generally told to visitors hitherto. The Queen as monarch, she has a political role, she has a a diplomatic role, she has a role as as the leader of of a vast empire. And these are all things that Lee explores in his thesis. And they're all things that we knew about, but had never really been explored in detail in the way that the site was presented to our visitors. So it seemed, you know, sort of long overdue that we would reevaluate the way that we looked at Osborne, the way that it was presented. And I think the first step to that was actually recognising the fact that Victoria and Albert themselves had curated Osborne as this seaside family home. And in a sense, we were sort of buying into that vision that they created and that we needed to sort of get back under the surface and dig a little bit deeper to find out what Osborne was really like and what activities actually took place there. Well, let's try to shine a light on this new information or this old information, which has sort of been relatively recently uncovered by Dr. Lee Butcher, uh, your PhD uh, student. So welcome, Doctor, I suppose, is uh, is the first thing I can say to Lee. 
Thank you, Charles. Yeah, still getting used to it. It's actually been a few years now, but still getting used to, to the pre-nominative. When I was brought in to do the research, there was this general understanding that there was more to tell about Osborne. And from my historian's perspective as a political historian, I thought we could use this place to tell us about the institution in itself. Because there has a, been a raging debate for a very long time around what the monarchy does, what it is, what did Victoria's monarchy do? Was it purely ceremonial and it lost its, its role in government and it was there to look nice but not do much else? Or was it much more involved? You know, My theory was if we could look at a particular place and look what they were up to as far as his official duties go, it might reveal something about the institution and what it was doing and then have the added benefit that it could then help us tell these additional stories about Osborne. I thought about the Queen as, as Queen rather than, say, as mother, as wife, and then look for her duties. What looking through the sources, through her diary, through the copious amounts of correspondence, all the information we have about Victoria's reign. Look for those things. What was she doing and what in particular was she doing at Osborne? To do that, I took it in essentially three tranches, three types of work she would do. First as kind of monarch of the United Kingdom, her role within in government, in appointments, working with her ministers, doing her paperwork in her boxes. Her role as kind of UK's chief diplomat. The monarchy really retained an interest in foreign policy over and above often domestic policy. It was something that had been historically a big part of the monarchy's role. And as domestic government got bigger and more complex, the monarchy really retained its interest in what was going on abroad and in diplomacy. And of course, in empire, British empire, you know, the largest at the time. It was a major thing, a major cultural part of Britain, major part of what it did in the world, and it underpinned its global primacy and its global position. So the Queen was Empress of India, and she was that sovereign of an empire. So by looking at these activities, looking at what she was doing in these, we could see what was going on at Osborne, and then that would then help us tell, tell us a different story about this particular place. Yes, as you described, you sort of divided it up into three segments, government slash politics, diplomacy and the empire aspect as well. So let's begin with the first of those, which is the governmental aspect, and talk about Osborne's role in how the country was ruled domestically. What sort of government activity took place at Osborne? So as Andrew mentioned, you know, the Queen can't really escape her work. Um, Unlike many others, she wouldn't leave her home, go to an office, do the day job, go home. Work came to her. Her home was also her office. And because the business of government couldn't wait, she would do everything when she was at Osborne, the whole gamut of activities. So writing correspondence, writing letters, going through her red boxes, which were these, if listeners don't know, these kind of red dispatch boxes, they still exist and still go between government ministers, departments and palace. They have the official papers in government policy, government proposals, intelligence, those kind of things. And the Queen would go through her red boxes that were delivered from Whitehall, finish what was in them, they'd be shipped back to London and then whatever was in them would be actioned. We know we have in her journal, she writes about reading the news or having ladies in waiting read the news to her and they would talk and comment on whatever was happening in the news, home and abroad. Uh, She'd read dispatches that would come in, telling her what's going on in parts of the country or abroad. We'll talk about this more, holding meetings with ministers. They would come to her at Osborne and be hosted by her. They'd have meetings, have discussions, as well as they would socialise with the royal family as well. How many prime ministers did uh, Queen Victoria work with and, and visit Osborne during her reign? 
essentially from sort of Robert Peel onwards, all of them. What you've got from 1845 when the house is built, so Robert Peel, Prime Minister at the time, knew the Blatchford family, the deceased father of the family had been a sort of minor conservative MP. So he was known within party circles. The family were known. Peel knew the house was up for sale and recommended it to the family. And from that point on, all of them at some point or another have to make the journey down to the Isle of Wight to hold audiences with the Queen. One anecdote I thought was quite interesting, the 1pm of the Queen's who didn't visit Lord Melbourne, the obvious point being he was no longer Prime Minister when the Queen and Albert bought Osborne. But more interestingly, when he was next pm he was being asked by the Queen to advise on the coming into government of Lord John Russell, 1845, around the Corn Laws. And he was asked to come to Osborne to have a meeting to discuss what Lord John Russell was all about, to advise the Queen on how to handle it. And he claimed um, thaslophobia or fear of the sea. He was terrified of getting on a boat and coming to Osborne. So I think the wily old hand found a good excuse to not make the journey and told the Queen he'd meet her when he was next in London. Interesting story. So previously in the news, when we've had the passing of the late Queen Elizabeth II, one of those parts of the story of her death was how many prime ministers she worked with. How does that compare, just to give people a sense of how many Queen Victoria worked with. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, of course, Queen Elizabeth II did reign longer than Queen Victoria, but the numbers were for Queen Victoria, there were 10 prime ministers, and for Elizabeth II, there were 15. Some of the discrepancy we counted for in the 19th century is much more common for a politician to have been in office, left, and come back again. Often in the 20th century, under the late Queen Elizabeth II, you had one go at it. And that was your lot. So there was a difference in in how the political system was operating and the kind of longevity of political lifespans at the time. Yes, we had um, Gladstone coming up. Was it three times under Victoria? Four, in fact. He was prime minister four times. First took office in in December 1868 and in the final time in August 1892. So Gladstone had four goes. I gather you have some figures as well about her relationships with obviously international leaders. Because obviously we're talking about someone who is sovereign of an empire. So how many additional world leaders would have worked under her? 23, I think that would make it. Okay, we'll come to the um, international side of things a bit later on. But um, did any other ministers, domestic ministers, visit Osborne to speak to the Queen? Yes, absolutely. So... Of course, the Lord's President of the Privy Council would attend whenever there was a Privy Council meeting, so they were regular visitors. You would get foreign secretaries would often come to visit. I'd mentioned the Queen's interest in foreign policy, so you would often find those as visitors. One really interesting example that I picked out was in August 1892, when Gladstone was coming in for his last stint in office. Lord Salisbury's Conservatives had lost power in the election in July 1892. Gladstone was coming in. And on one day, on Thursday, the 18th of August at Osborne, you have no less than two entire cabinets all appearing on site. The Conservatives came into the council room at Osborne to bid farewell to the Queen, to hand back their seals of office and to end their time in government. The Queen had conversations with them. And then when they had shuffled out the building and gone, their liberal successors all came in and were in the council room and took their seals of office and kiss hands and then had individual meetings in the small drawing room next to the council room after that. So you had essentially two cabinets and a good chunk of of Britain's political life all in Osborne at, at that one time during transfer of power. You'd have that sort of thing you know, fairly regularly as well uh, during um, transfers of power. And these days, or at least in the recent reign of Queen Elizabeth II, it was taking place at Balmoral, is that right? Or, or Windsor Castle? Or Buckingham Palace? 
for the late Queen Elizabeth II, it was mostly at Buckingham Palace. Um, the expectation the monarch would try and make herself available close to Whitehall and to Westminster. But that wasn't the case in the 19th century. Balmoral wasn't used as much as you'd expect. It was a long kind of overnight journey on the train to get to Balmoral, so that was less well used. But Osborne, you know, was accessible right about three hours. Journey times are not dissimilar to the are now to get down to the Isle of Wight. And in fact, it might even have been quicker because you may have a royal steam yacht waiting for you. There's no waiting around for the red jet timetable back then. So you could get down pretty relatively quickly and do your business there. Windsor Castle was the most used because the Queen was there quite a bit. It was much closer to London. But Osborne was then the next most used place. Buckingham Palace, very popular early in the reign with... um, before Albert's death. Then after Albert's death, she took a bit of an aversion to London and to Buckingham Palace and essentially abandoned it. Might show up for the day and do some odds and ends, but most of the time she avoided Buckingham Palace, so it, it fell off the agenda. But that's when we see Osborne become into much greater prominence later on in the Queen's reign. You've just talked about how, how relatively easy it was to get to Osborne. So how would a, a prime minister of the day arrive? Would he come down by train and then catch this steamer over the uh, Solent? That's exactly right, Charles. The Prime Minister, if they were in London, as they might often have been, get the Great Western Railway down to Gosport, jump on a steamship, go over to a dedicated royal pier in in what's now East Cowes. The pier's still there. I don't think it's just very much, but it's still there. Then they would be picked up by horse-drawn carriage and taken up to the residence and then back again. Quite a funny story, Lord John Rosser, when he was called into office, was actually in Edinburgh and he didn't know where to go. So he saw he got himself down to London and had to ask around colleagues in Whitehall to work out how on earth he was going to get down there. Because it was you know, the 1840s, Osborne was still new and he wasn't quite sure what the way was. But from that point onwards, it became such a regular schedule. Everyone knew what they were doing and it all became very routine. I see. And I suppose prime ministers were helped in that regard with the uh, navigation by the fact that some of these services were laid on by the monarch. That's right. So the royal family had kind of a small fleet of royal yachts. There was the large dedicated yacht, the Victoria and Albert and the Victoria and Albert II, and then smaller tender ships, they called them. So they appropriately named HMY Osborne and the Ferry and others during the course of Queen Victoria's reign. So there were options there to pick them up. And if for whatever reason one of them weren't available, there was the steam packet and the ferry getting over as well. So it was an extremely well-connected place. So as he arrived, this Prime Minister of the day, on a horse-drawn carriage, I presume he would be in the carriage and then pull up, uh, step out and meet Her Majesty at the front of the property. Would, would that be right? So it'd be unlikely the Queen would meet him as he got off his horse and carriage. What would essentially happen is they would come in as visitors as they approach the house. You'll see there's a kind of turning circle in front of the pavilion. Oh, you've got the pavilion in front of you, the household wing to your side, and then the Durbar wing to the other side. There's a door there. It's not really used by English Heritage now in the household wing. That was the minister's door. So the carriage would come up there, Prime Minister get out, and there would set double doors he would go through. Visitors can now see where it was, because after they've done the introductory exhibition and they're going through the corridor, heading towards the council room, they see there's this alcove sort of gold leaf with a statue of Victoria looking very regal and quite formal and there's emblems of the United Kingdom around her. It's it's oddly formal for kind of a domestic setting and that's because the eye line would have been to that alcove would have been from the door and straight to it. It was the first thing that ministers saw when they arrived. Ah, very interesting. That really sets the tone, doesn't it? And it's interesting that the entrance itself is, sounds like more of a side entrance as opposed to something that may have been reserved for more international guests, shall we say. 
Yes, it wasn't. I wouldn't say it was particularly grand, and it is to the side, but it is within that that central element. So from it, you can see the main door to the pavilion, the way into the Durbar wing. So it was fairly central, but yeah, it's not particularly ornate externally. It sort of sets up this idea of work and the importance of just getting down to the nitty gritty, I suppose, but also setting the tone of you are in Her Majesty's workspace now, Prime Minister. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think there's some of that. There's when you're going into the pavilion, as Andrew has said, it can feel quite domestic and quite family orientated. So what sort of meeting room would have been employed for these meetings with the Queen and her prime ministers? So it very much depended on what you were there for and where you stood in the Queen's estimations at the point at which you were visiting. If you were there for a large formal meeting, you might go past that door and turn down the Grand Corridor. Private Secretary's office is right there, who was kind of the Queen's lead official for public duties and a gatekeeper. If it was a bit more formal, that meeting, you might go into the council room and do it in their privy council meetings that we've already described. There was then kind of an antechamber, a small drawing room where more intimate conversations could still happen. If you are more in favour with the crown, you might be allowed up from the ground floor. We know Disraeli met with the Queen up in the family rooms. Essentially, the more kindly the Queen looked upon you, the further into the residence you would be allowed to go, and the more informal your setting with the Queen. If you're poor Gladstone, you're rather on the ground floor in a slightly drafty space and left waiting. If you were Disraeli, you were ushered up to the Queen without much delay. So the Queen could offer that level of hospitality, but she could also deny it. And it was a way of her communicating to her prime ministers what her thoughts and feelings were at the time. Subtle, yet not subtle. (laughs) Do you think they got the message? (laughs) I think they very much did. I think Gladstone very certainly got the message. That was uh, her probably most strained relationship amongst the prime ministers. And it was, I think he knew exactly what the Queen thought of him. And yet he was voted in four times. Exactly. And there's that interesting, that broader dynamic between politics earlier, particularly around the Georgians, that is quite focused around the palace and the prime minister, of course, with an element of election there, but the monarch having more of a say who was going to be Prime Minister. Whereas by this point, franchises are increasing later on the reign. The Queen essentially has to put up with the people's decision and has to work through it. There's a definite change that we see. And the Queen might not like the Prime Minister, but if they've been voted in it and they have the votes in the House of Commons, there isn't much she can do about it. Did politicians, domestic ones, stay long? Would they have been there just for the day or would they have perhaps had an overnight stay and then gone back to London and Westminster in the morning? Again, it depended. They did. So you had some uh, prime ministers who were more in the Queen's favour, people like Disraeli and Lord Salisbury, who um, did stay for longer. They might have a, a weekend at Osborne and be and take part in activities, go out and do field sports, driving around the estate, all of that kind of thing, and dining with the royal family. Or you might have um, someone like Gladstone, who essentially stays for the minimum. He did stay overnight, not all the time, but he would he would stay. He would dine with the Queen, have probably a rather frosty meal, and then go up to his accommodation and then leave in the morning. So it very much depended. Osborne was set up for them to stay longer, or they could come, do the minimum, and leave again. You might have, say, a junior minister come for a investiture or something, come, do the meeting, and then leave again, and have a rather long day travelling to and from London. Out of all the rooms that you've described so far, and obviously their use depended on the Prime Minister and also the type of meeting that was being held, did some of these rooms have to be created or were they already at Osborne as part of the building or did they have to be added as part of Albert's grand plans for the uh, estate? So they were essentially designed in. So I think Andrew's already mentioned that 
There was a pre-existing Georgian villa. I think by most of our standards, it would be very comfortable, but for a royal household, it was very modest. And they try and use it. So the queen, the court are there. They're kind of down to a minimum because they can't fit everyone in. And prime ministers do visit the old house. Peel is there. You know, I'm sure it probably wasn't too amusing for the people at the time, but when you read the diary entries, it does seem quite amusing. These people on top of each other, things are a bit awkward, a bit difficult. Protocol and levels of separation couldn't quite be maintained. Old Osborne simply didn't work. And it certainly didn't have spaces for investitures or coming in and out of government, the sort of thing that the council room was built for. What we see in Osborne now is a reaction to that. They gave modest domesticity a go. It didn't work. And what we see at Osborne is a purpose-built facility. It's got large spaces where you could have in the council room these these more formal occasions. It's got series of rooms where you can have increasing levels of informality in it. It's got office space um, up in the pavilion for the Queen essentially a reaction to what didn't work. So what we see is a purpose-built facility for the Royal Department of State. It sounds as though it worked very well as a result of this extra planning and trial and error. So the Queen was in a great position to, to be able to hold her office, hold her meetings, and ensure that her status was maintained and respected by anyone coming in and out. I think it worked reasonably well. Of course, it it had its issues. I think by comparison to some of the other residences, guest accommodation was probably still quite modest. You know, it probably wasn't a place you wanted uh, Prime Minister to be there for a very long time, but it passed serviceably well. You know, from what we can tell, there was absolutely no reason why what the Queen wanted to do couldn't happen at Osborne, and the facilities she provided did that well. That's the governmental side of things then covered. So let's move on to the diplomatic and more international side If Osborne hosted domestic politicians, then presumably it was also set up for this welcoming of international leaders. How did it sort of put on a different show for international guests? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And the the same facilities that would work for domestic politicians worked for, for international visitors. I think the differences were related to who it was that was visiting. So there would have been similarities around, say, ambassadors visiting because they had a, you know, a similar social status to domestic politicians. The real difference came in when it was royalty that was visiting. So it's worth bearing in mind you know, the, the broader context around visitors that the Queen is sovereign in a highly deferential and highly socially differentiated society. She is, as far as they saw the world, of a significantly elevated status than, say, her politicians were. Visiting royalty, and particularly her family, were the closest the Queen could get to equals. So there was a class dynamic that changed their experience of the site, the levels of formality, the kinds of protocol that you might encounter, the level of informality that you might encounter when you're at the site. That changed when it was royalty visiting. When it came to domestic political visitors, essentially they were fairly run-of-the-mill. These were were business events. There might be some ceremony, but there's not much kind of externally facing work going on there. When it came to visiting royalty, you might have fanfare, particularly because Osborne and its maritime location and its connection to the Navy, you would get naval displays, you would get gun salutes, you would get naval reviews, this kind of thing. So there was a bit more fanfare around them than there would be for domestic business. What kind of diplomatic visitors did Queen Victoria host? You previously mentioned foreign secretaries, I presume ambassadors. Any other people? 
Yeah, absolutely. So for ambassadors, you know, almost any country you'd care to name, you know, the major European countries, North America, I picked up ambassadors for China, Japan, Siam, which is now modern Thailand, Monaco, Venezuela, others. Some of it we'll probably discuss in a bit. There were foreign military officers would come and visit, particularly visiting navies, would come and tour the grounds and would come and visit the Queen. And there were also kind of British ambassadors. So it wasn't just foreign ambassadors to Britain, but Britain's ambassadors that were going out. Often on an ambassador's appointment to a posting, he would have a preliminary meeting with the Queen to discuss his posting and what's going on in the country, what his ideas and thoughts were before he was deployed. If they were back in London, they would visit the Queen and in modern parlance would come and brief the Queen on their posting and what was going on on their patch. Same to have military attaches. Uh, there was a visit by the British military attaché to Moscow, to the Queen, to talk about what's going on with Russian relations. So you have these global connections and these people coming in and out to come and meet the Queen. And of course, we already mentioned royalty as well, which is probably the most prominent. You have particularly her family members in it, Germany and Russia and others coming on both family visits and diplomatic visits. Were there any particularly important diplomatic talks or meetings that took place at Osborne? Absolutely. So so in the thesis, I picked out some, I think, really ex- interesting examples that show how the site was used. So, for example, 1857, Napoleon III, Emperor of, of France, and the British government are, are experiencing some tensions around what to do after the end of the Crimean War and what to do around territories around the Black Sea. And to try and solve some of these differences and these tensions, the French themselves asked to have a meeting with the Queen and the government at Osborne. So he arrived in 1857, came with the French fleet. There was a lot of display going on at sea. And then Napoleon III came to the site along with the royal family. The Queen, there was quite an interesting gender dynamic. Albert, along with the Prime Minister and the Foreign Secretary and their French counterparts, got together in a room and talked through the discussions and went through the diplomatic issues. The Queen took the Empress and took the family and did the soft power element, took them on tours around the grounds, took them around the house, socialised with them. So they divided the work between them. Albert taking the very formal end of the work and being there with the politicians and the Queen, essentially developing rapport and relations with the French. That's very interesting. Whereas had this been Queen Elizabeth, you'd perhaps expect the TV cameras to be capturing the Queen with the leader who's visiting at the time. Exactly. So there were depictions in art, and it was reported in the press this was happening. But essentially, at Osborne, the the Queen could have her cake and eat it. There could be display out on the sea, out where people could view it, and then they could bring their Dubai visitors in in a kind of private setting. It's kind of a Camp David element to it, where you could bring them in and, and have these discussions and have this bonding with your foreign counterparts to help relations. So Osborne essentially allowed the monarchy to, to do a bit of both. To what extent was the distinction blurred between family life and diplomacy at this time? Because were the children still growing up around the time that these diplomats and international visitors were coming and going? Absolutely. So the diplomatic visits begin you know, relatively early in Victoria's time at Osborne, and they develop over. So I think the most important blurring comes when the children are getting older and the marriages are beginning. So really good example is is... British relations with Prussia, later Germany, the crown princess, Vicky, the queen's eldest daughter, marries into the Prussian and German royal family. And Osborne is used for those purposes. So during the courtship, the potential suitor, Frederick, he's over in Britain. He comes to Osborne and there's kind of a you know, a courtship going on between Vicky and Frederick at Osborne where they're getting to know each other. Later on, Frederick's parents come to Osborne. Of course, these are prominent members of the 
Prussian royal family, but they're there to essentially to agree the final terms of Vicky's marriage, you know, what the endowments would be, what her staff would look like, what her household would look like, all of those kind of things. Osborne's used as a place where the families could get together and discuss. And that is both, you know, it's a marriage, it's a very family, very intimate thing, but it's also a bonding of, of two royal houses and two prominent potential European rivals at the time. And it continues. Vicky keeps coming, comes back with her husband on visits. Sadly, when he takes to the throne, Frederick III, he's only in the office for, for 99 days before dying. And then quite quickly, Vicky's son, Wilhelm II, comes into power. And then there's a new lease of life on these engagements. You know, in 1889, he's back at Osborne. And what we see during those visits, they become major ceremonial events. There are huge reviews. I mean, the big one in 1889 had, um, I think, 100 ships and 23,000 sailors all on review with Wilhelm and Victoria reviewing the ships and the royal yacht. So these were both ceremonial and intense diplomatic discussions, but they were also family events as well. And it's very, very hard to distinguish the two when it comes to Victoria. I suppose in terms of diplomatic visits versus governmental domestic visits, there's a huge difference then fundamentally. There is in kind of conceptually on what these events are. They are one is these are external groups, external partners that you need to develop the relationships with. You need they're part of tensions. There is, you know, the family marries into Russia. Of course, there'd been war with Russia in the Crimea. There, there were big stakes there. Whereas at home, it's about developing relationships, but it, it is very different around the class dynamic, around some of the ceremonial stuff that goes on. So there is a difference. If you want to have more influence as well internationally, then marriages, as you were describing, are an important part of that. And I suppose it's only natural that you would try to put on the best show possible in order to ensure that those discussions go well. Exactly. No, I, th- I think that's right. I think it, and it's show, but it's also, you know, this domestic element of Osborne also helps because you're bringing them into the family home. That's how the monarchy can have its cake and eat it at Osborne. It can do so, but it also bring them into the family home and make them feel part of the clan. And I think Osborne really serves that purpose well. How important was Osborne in forming this bridge between foreign powers and UK governments then? I'd say it was very important. It's worth bearing in mind kind of where Osborne sits in the broader context, the rural residences. Osborne had a unique role to play in doing it. So you've got Buckingham Palace, heart of London, close to power. You can do lots of ceremony there and it's very visible. Windsor is kind of ancient. You can show off kind of the antiquity of the institution. Close enough to London, people can come there. Balmoral, very far away. The family would go, not many others would go up to Balmoral. Osborne, it was this maritime element. It was the fact you could have ships approach the residents. I mean, the German fleet, when Wilhelm came, arrayed themselves outside Osborne Bay and fired salutes to Osborne, to the building, to the royal flag. There was an intimate connection between the sea and between the residents and between the navies on the sea and, and the monarch in the house. So, Osborne is unique in doing that, and actually unique amongst modern rural residences. It's very hard to there weren't many really that did this, and it's worth bearing in mind. You know, the historians have been have, have shown this navalism and and the acts of of navies coming and doing big reviews and showing off. This was a major part of international diplomacy in the later nineteenth century and the early twentieth century. And Osborne is the one royal residence where the British monarchy can get in on the act. Yes, I think that's really interesting because the naval aspect, you know, ships are the primary way of getting around the world, aren't they, fundamentally? So Absolutely. To be able to they, show they were, off... They were key. Yes, and, and the British Navy was very strong and able. So I think that's probably a key thing that you want to show off, isn't it? And also, I suppose, from a geographical 
perspective, apart from the Channel Islands and obviously any other overseas <laughs> territories, in terms of the British Isles, the Isle of Wight is going to be the most probably southerly but most central point where an international visitor would approach. So it's almost like visiting the sort of the major gatehouse to the realm. Absolutely. There can be a bit of a habit if we're taking a kind of UK-centric view with the Isle of Wight. It's a bit soft, the south coast, it's a bit away from the action. But if you take your view to be continental, the Isle of Wight is actually perfectly located for shipping routes in and out of the country. Portsmouth is immediately opposite the water. The chief naval base for the British Empire is right there. Southampton, the major commercial port, is just down the coast. The Isle of Wight it sits at a, a hub of, of maritime transport networks, which, of course, the steamship steamship revolution at the time has only made better and, and, and increased. What you see is Osborne is actually quite centrally located as far as the world goes and visitors coming in. Yeah, I think listeners are probably help getting a good idea then of why Osborne was chosen and why it was used to do all this extra work, basically, both Absolutely. foreign and domestic. Let's then talk about the empire side of things and how influence spread further around the world and Britain's relationship with its empire. So how many imperial territories did visitors come from? All of them, really. I mean, anywhere you would care to point to that was in the British Empire at this time, you can find a visitor has come into Osborne at that time. The reach was genuinely global, all the way from Canada on one end to Australia and the other, New Zealand, India, which I'm sure we'll talk about shortly, South Africa and, and British Imperial territories in Africa. You have plenty of visitors coming from Osborne. It really drew people in globally. From New Zealand in 1863, a Maori delegation visited Osborne, dressed partly in traditional dress. They gave gifts, which were later deposited um, in the Swiss cottage. And they were there as part of a process in London to petition the UK government to do something about the New Zealand government during the kind of long-running conflict between settler government and the Maori. And there's been, you know, other historians have looked at this and essentially the Maori were trying to say to the Queen, this treaty is in your name. Please um, live up to your end of the bargain and do something about your government. And in a similar vein, your listeners might might know this individual more. King Kedishweo of the Zulu visited Osborne in 1882. It's only three years after the end of the Anglo-Zulu Wars, which are fairly well known in popular culture. He's come to London in a similar way to the Maori to petition the UK government. Kedishweo uh, would like his throne restored to him, um, which had been taken from him at the end of the conflict. He wore traditional dress, even though he dressed in European clothes for the rest of the visit. He was put on a bit of a show for Victoria. They had an audience. He gave her gifts. And I think in a rather poignant moment, the Queen notes in her journal that she's watching him leave in a, in a open carriage. And as he's going, he stands up and keeps eye contact with her until he's out of sight. And there's something quite poignant about that. You know, he's lost his throne. There was extremely high loss of life during that war. And the two sides of that conflict have, have come together at Osborne. And there's an interesting dynamic. You know, what was what was Kate Shiro doing there? Was it respect? Was it defiance? What was going on? I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yes, that really is. That could be a podcast episode on its own, really. And what other ways did empire feature at Osborne? I mean, I'm thinking of the clues that would give the sense that this was a place where internationalism is very present. 
Absolutely. So what you find in, to use the jargon, the material culture, the kind of the stuff in the house, the art, the objects, empire is present. You'll see busts of kind of African subjects are, are in the Durbar wing along with, with Indian subjects. The Swiss cottage, I think, is probably the best example. I think you talked about it in a previous podcast. The Swiss cottage, a sort of museum in a chalet type building. Initially, the royal children would collect curios and put them in here for their kind of education. But this took on an increasingly imperial uh, flavor to it. A one really good example that connects with the Kitajweyu visit I spoke to. In 1880, the Queen notes in her journal that they've received Asagain shields from Zululand. They were taken by British forces from the battlefield during the Anglo-Zulu War. They've arrived at Osborne and the Queen and the ladies-in-waiting deposit them in the Swiss cottage and they're put on display. So these are kind of the arms and weaponry from the war that Kedishwayu has and has suffered from and has lost his throne on, but they're there in display in the Swiss cottage. So I think for me, it's kind of a fascinating example. The Swiss cottage isn't just about the children and about education. The collection of the house is very much linked to the business of empire in all of its guises. How important then was Osborne in the Queen's relations with India? You've talked about the Durbar Room, which if people have listened to episode one, they will know what the Durbar Room is. But uh, can you explain a bit more about relations with India and that room? Yeah, absolutely. So Osborne is, I think it's safe to say, unique in that regard. Osborne was the one place where the Queen, as Empress of India, could build herself a a surrounding room that was fitting for the Empress of India. It was the place where she could best articulate her view of India and how she wanted to approach it. And it's worth bearing in mind that yes, the Durbar Ring is about the Queen's personal satisfaction and what she liked and, and all the rest of it, But my research, what I've argued is that it's a way of articulating how to approach empire in India. You know, there are tensions at the time. There is a view within the British state between Whitehall and Calcutta. They would often reach for the stick rather than the carrot when there was tension. The Queen was articulating a different view. I mean, there was an article that at the time that went out that called it kind of a maternal interest. This idea that the Queen cared for her Indian subjects, that she had regard for them. Essentially, the carrot persuasion over coercion. And the Durbar Wing's a way of showing that. It shows, you know, I care for your architecture, I care for your art. And in the artwork, you know, I think Swoboda's portraits of, of ordinary Indians, as they were termed, there is kind of symbolically bringing the Indian people into Osborne. So it's a way of articulating a way of doing empire and a way of viewing empire that was probably unusual to the Queen. It was her, her way of doing things. Presumably leaders from India were hosted at Osborne and could walk into the Durbar room and then feel at home, I suppose. Absolutely. So Double Wing was quite late in the Queen's reign, and a lot of her Indian visitors were slightly earlier. There were a few. Got to say, a lot of the visitors would have been European rivals, kind of showing off the might of the British Empire. But there were Indian visitors. Got to say, the examples I have are kind of before the Durbar Wing, but there are good examples here. There's the Maharaja Dulip Singh. Again, there's been a lot written about the Maharaja. Listeners might be aware of him. He was a deposed, very young ruler of Sikh Empire. He was a teenager when he came to Osborne. And the Queen, essentially, there was, this, again, this maternal aspect. Victoria and Albert essentially treated him like some like a godson, perhaps. And really interesting, um, he played with the royal children. And when he was there, the annual estate fate was on. The tents out in the grounds, there was bobbing for apples. There was all sorts going on. And the Maharaja went and played with the royal children. There was this idea of bringing Julep 
into the imperial fold to become essentially bring him in so he's he and his dynasty are no longer a threat was essentially i think what was going on there and uh, make him and he was uh, eventually uh, set up with a house and, and sent for his education in britain osborne played a really important role in that process visitors will see in the double ring as they go in now a very large portrait of the maharaja in all of his finery in a similar way, Princess Gurama, again a daughter of a deposed ruler, brought to London, essentially into exile. And Gurama visited Osborne and, and met with the Queen in a very similar process, uh, became the Queen's goddaughter and the rest of it. So you see the Queen having this process of taking Indian, particularly young Indian rulers or their children, bringing them into the fold, into the family fold. Again, this idea of domesticity being used for imperial purposes was very much on show. And then finally, Golden Jubilee, 1887, again before the Durbar Wing, but you have a whole host of, of Indian royalty of various descriptions from across India are in London for the Jubilee, and they visit the Queen of Osborne, and they give these kind of ornate gifts, the kind of ornamental casks, a lot of them, and they were on display in the Durbar Wing for a very long time when the building was finished. Would these Indian guests over this quite long time period have been met by Indian servants, because in a previous podcast we've covered the fact that Queen Victoria had certainly one, and I think more than one Indian servant. So would they have had uh, that sort of dynamic going on with Indian servants serving honoured guests from India in the presence of the Queen? So they certainly would have been present. Exactly what activities they were getting up to. They served at table. They helped the Queen get around with her mobility and that kind of thing. So certainly I think when the visitors were there, the Indian servants would have been present. So again, the Queen, by having genuine Indians there and got to say in, in rather fanciful livery clothing that she designed herself, having them there as a way of demonstrating that her connection with India and her interest in India, and whether it's Indian visitors or whether it's visitors from, from Europe or elsewhere, is, is communicating this imperial dynamic to the Queen's reign. How would these Indian servants have got their roles at Osborne? So essentially, the Queen used her connection she had. So the very first Indian servants, so Mohammed Bukshi and Abdul Karim, latter being the, the more famous of the two, they had a connection with the 1886 Indian and Colonial Exhibition in South Kensington. The Queen had visited, and this seems to have spurred an interest in the Queen in kind of Indian decorative arts and, and the idea of bringing Indians over. Karim's employer, John Tyler, was putting on an exhibition there. So the Queen had made a connection with Tyler and was able to call on that connection when she wanted to recruit the Indian servants. And Bookshi's uh, former employer, Major General Denny, was at court. He'd kind of recently arrived. He was coming in as a uh, as a lord, in, as, a, as a member of the, the household. And I think the Queen could ask the Major General with his Indian connection, do you know anyone who could come over and be one of my servants? So she flexed these informal contacts and ended up being two people that those two people she knew were eventually then sent over in 1887 to start their duties. They were then followed by more of them. Was having international important guests and Indian servants the closest that Queen Victoria ever got to India? Yeah, absolutely. So the Queen herself never never visited India. I think that the practical thing is practical considerations, that it was just too far away from the business of government for the Queen to be in India to do that long journey, to be there and then come back. So the Queen herself never visited. So the Indian servants, the Durbar wing, were all the means at which Victoria could bring India to her. Though it is worth bearing in mind that there were other parts of the family did visit. So I think the most interesting one for us 
for this podcast, the Prince of Wales visited India, and he did so, and I think in the appropriately named Her Majesty's Yacht Osborne. So at least symbolically, Osborne was represented in India by taking the Prince of Wales on a tour there in 1875 and 1876. We've mentioned the Durbar Room a few, a few times, but could you give us a few highlights, visual highlights from the Durbar Room? So when you walk into it, you know, what should visitors look out for? Absolutely. So as you're coming from the pavilion along the tour route, the Dobar wing essentially is an L-shaped extension, comes off the pavilion. As you walk around, I'd really encourage guests to stop and really um, admire the artwork that's there. You'll see depictions and, and sculptures of Julep Singh, of Gorama, who I've already mentioned. And it's really worth spending time, I think, looking at Swoboda's portraits of Indians partly for their artistic merit and their historical interest, but also for the sheer effort it took to get them here. The Queen, the Viceroy of India, their private secretary, Spoda himself. There was a huge logistical effort taken to get Spoda out there, have these artworks done and have them back in Osborne. It was a huge imperial dynamic it took to get them there. So they're, they're fascinating works of art for the art in itself and for what they show. And when you've done that, when you're in the room itself, I mean, the plaster work is very impressive, you know, designed by Lockwood Kipling, father of Rudyard, the famous author, executed by Bahram Singh, who came over from India to do it. It's very impressive, in particular, the kind of three-dimensional peacock that's coming out the side of the room is is quite impressive. The one thing I would probably highlight is, um, and it probably it isn't really in the guidebook, but when you're looking around, look for the oddness in the site. If you look at the far end, there's kind of a, a mezzanine gallery at the top. I mean, anyone with sort of architectural familiarity might wonder if minstrels, neo-Gothic minstrel galleries were a part of Indian architecture. They weren't really. What the Durbar room and wing is, is kind of a mishmash, a very Victorian mishmash of styles. The the room, of course, is, is of an Indian style, got to say a very British take on Indian style that developed under direct British rule there. The form is actually a bit neo-Gothic Great Hall, which was all the raging country houses at this time. They were putting in kind of recreations of medieval halls. But then the outside of the building is a copy of the Italianate, mid-Victorian Italianate style that Osborne was originally built in. So the, the double ring is actually a bit odd. And I, I think that part of its charm, I think that gives it its interest. So I encourage visitors to, to look with a critical eye at what they're looking at and not just be overwhelmed by the decorative impressiveness of it all. Interesting. So visual and textural, but not a pastiche then. It's sort of an authentic but modern interpretation of Indianism, if that's a word. That's right. It's a very, um, I think, and when we think about empire, very appropriately, it's a British perspective on India, I think is the way to, to say it. Of course, Indians were brought in and they could put their influence at Bahram Singh could do his work. And you see that particularly in the finer details and the elements. But the overall structure is is quite a British take on on what Indian architecture is. But essentially, it's a mishmash. And I think there's something um, sort of symbolic about the nature of empire in that. But the impression that that would have left on Indian guests, I presume, would have been still quite deep. They would have felt quite a sense of majesty about it. I think so. So I won't say that I've read first-hand accounts where they've said that, but I think you can get the general impression that when you come in, it is a very impressive space and it is unique. They wouldn't have gone to any of the other royal residences and seen this. So I think if they got to Osborne and their audience was there at Osborne, I think they would have inevitably been taken, I'll put it that way, they would have been taken by what they saw and it would have left an impression. Well, as we begin to conclude our episode on Osborne politics and empire and this changing narrative of the place, what new insights have been brought to light during your research, Lee? So I think what I wanted to do from the outset, what I wanted to do was try and 
rediscover the complexities and importance of Osborne by casting it as a seaside retreat it rather diminishes what the site is. It's more important than that. And in the 19th century, it was a prominent place in public life. People knew about Osborne. They knew what happened there. They knew it was a place where important things happened. And I think for modern visitors and modern audiences, I think it's important to get that over to them. I think what my research has been able to do is partly take a look at some old sources and some new information and bring out what was hiding in plain sight. There's perhaps been, you know, some selective reading of what's been going on at Osborne and perhaps with the monarchy more generally. And I think what my research has tried to do is to bring that nuance back in and say there were both things going on here. It was a complex picture. And I think in doing that, hopefully it, we can, it allows us to eventually do justice to these stories. And hopefully it helps contribute to our understanding of the monarchy more generally and what the institution meant during Queen Victoria's reign. Andrew, Dr. Andrew Han, you've been listening to Lee's contributions to this very interesting subject and you supervised his PhD thesis as well. So how is English Heritage going to explore Lee's new perspectives on Osborne with visitors in practice? Well, I think, you know, it's been a fascinating voyage of discovery over the over the past few years of, of working with Lee on, on this thesis research. And as he said, it's uncovered all these different nuanced ways of looking at the site and, and basically brought home to us the extent to which we're not telling the full story currently about what Osborne is. And it's at a really crucial moment at the moment for Osborne because we're just embarking on on a process of master planning to try and plan out how we're going to actually tell the story of Osborne over the next sort of 10, 15 years at the moment. And so it really gives us that opportunity to reevaluate how we're presenting the site and think about all these other approaches and ways that we can look at it. And, you know, I'm really keen that the way that we develop our interpretation at Osborne, that we can bring in these other stories. We can talk about its important role as a place for high politics, a place where diplomacy happened, where leaders like Napoleon III came to visit and strode upon the beach and, and came to the house. And also areas, you know, a place where the activity of empire was enacted, where imperial policy was both made, but also where it was displayed and presented to an audience. And I think that is is very important. And it's reflected, as Lee said, in the material culture of the site. There are elements of the site that you can, once you start trying to read the building, you can actually understand it as a place of politics, the route from the minister's entrance to the council room. And also the Durbar wing, but it's very much grander space where you can use for entertaining, where you can entertain imperial dignitaries or, or, or diplomatic visitors. And actually, it speaks to the power and, and significance of the British Empire. And I think, you know, Osborne does all those things. And to present it simply as a, a seaside family home doesn't really do it justice, as Lee said. So I think it's something that we definitely want to develop as we go forward with our master planning process. And it's a really exciting time thinking for the next few years about how we can tell these fascinating stories at what is one of our you know, most important sites. OK, so if people are wanting to plan a trip to Osborne in the future, when might they be able to encounter some of these extra nuances that uh, Lee and you have described? Well, it's going to be a relatively long process. I mean, this is something that's going to develop over a 10-year period. But I mean, I would encourage them to visit now and just sort of see Osborne as it is currently and see how they can actually read some of these other stories into the site just by looking at the uh, the fine collection and interiors now and then imagine you know, how it might be in a few years' time when we've actually sort of brought some of these stories to life. 
Or perhaps even imagine yourself as a visiting prime minister or ambassador or international leader and put yourself in the position of those people and try and think about how you would enter and and visit and be entertained. And perhaps you can easily see then the connections between the family, the foreign and those influences sort of interchanging and uh, being dependent upon one another, really. Indeed, yes. I mean, I think, you know, if you think about all the famous and infamous people and just sort of trying to put yourself in the place of those people and think about all the different functions and activities that took place there. And I think it's possible to do that today. So, yeah, I would certainly encourage people to visit and just look at Osborne with new eyes. There are lots of different interesting insights into Osborne that come out of Lee's work and I think will help to make it a more interesting and enticing visit, really. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll hear about the legal battles for lost lands, life and legacy of Lady Anne Clifford. The great triptychs, the funerary monuments, buildings that she built and particularly that she restored, diaries and a form of autobiography. She is a very interesting figure in the amount of diverse evidence that she generated. Thanks for listening. See you next time.